My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford Observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a man who was born in Germany during the Cold War to a father who was a Green Beret assigned to the Berlin Detachment. This guest grew up learning early that if you wanted to be the best, you had to beat the best. This guest is a second-generation Texas A&M Corps Cadets graduate and is also a second-generation Green Beret. He started his career as a chemical officer assigned to 2nd Battalion, 1st Special Forces Group. This guest has seen deployments to the Philippines, Iraq, Afghanistan. He's conducted special operations all across the Indo-Pacific Theater, and he's been an observer, coach, and trainer for Special Forces at the Joint Readiness Training Center. Today, he's the director for the Army Special Operations Language, Regional Education, and Cultural Directorate, and is the co-host for the Pineland Underground podcast. He's an officer, and he's a gentleman. Please welcome Major Bobby Tuttle. What's going on, my friend? DJ, what's going on, man? Happy to be on the show. Thanks for hosting yeah, me. I'm so happy that you're here. Uh, as we both know, you and I have a mutual friend in Chuck Ritter, uh, and he helped kind of put this together. And I'm I'm so happy that you're here to talk to you because I think that you can bring a lot to the table to talk about that. Uh, I think we're going to see a different side of special forces with you. Most of my guys that come on that are Green Berets are usually enlisted. And I think you can bring a different kind of approach to it. So let's start out being a second generation Green Beret. Let's talk about your dad being born in Berlin, Germany. And let's hear some stories about that, because that had to be wild growing up in that era. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I am a second-generation Green Beret, which is pretty cool, because at a young age, I definitely had big shoes to fill. And some of my earliest childhood memories are driving around in a Humvee, going to like watch Chinooks you know, land in water and launch Zodiacs. And really uh, just seeing my dad, you know, jump out of airplanes, being on the drop zone for huge, uh, you know, jumps out in, in Europe. And uh, for me, it was one of those things like, hey, my dad's a real life Green Beret. My dad's a real life G.I. Joe. And we got to live the life uh, overseas, which was really cool at an early age. So, um, yeah, my parents collectively, uh, you know, they, they spent, I think, 12 years in Germany. My dad's a longtime member of 10th Special Forces Group. But the only time, only place he was ever signed was literally over in Germany. Um, they did tours in uh, ba uh, Berlin, Bad Tolz, and then Stuttgart. And I happened to be uh, born in Berlin during their second tour over there. And um, yeah, so uh, got got involved in early age. Our parents, so my sister and I, uh, lived over there for about seven, eight, nine years as kids. And our parents were really cool about sending us off post. Uh, to the German-speaking schools where we're the only American or English speakers there. And so, yeah, really exposed at an early age. And I absolutely loved kind of getting to getting to see my dad kitted up, uh, camoed up, coming back from from long trips over in Europe. 
And, um, you know, being born during the Cold War, you know, the big scary thing was the, uh, the Russians coming over, the Soviets coming over back into Germany. And so it wasn't until a little bit later in life that I started to realize how unique and special that was when my dad, you know, and all my baby photos and little kid photos, you know, looked like uh, early James Bond, you know, rocking long hair and turtlenecks and, uh, you know, nice suits and stuff. He's like, oh, he's not in uniform. That's kind of odd. He's got great hair. Okay. But um, no, it was really neat for me uh, personally. And, um, you know, it, it, I, th I think kind of a series of fortunate events and some great mentors in my life continued to steer me in a great direction. Uh, towards a, a life of service and joining the army myself. So I'm a, a proud second generation uh, uh, Green Beret. And um, again, my mom and uh, sister were also exposed to that. And so what's really cool is my wife, uh, Lee, you know, really kind of takes that in and emulates the amazing military spouse and, you know, military wife and uh, does a great job, you know, carrying that torch for our family. Well, I think it's interesting when you bring that up about you know, being on drop zones, doing all these kind of things where you get to see your dad in action. I would think that a lot of that is gone these days where you can't really see what's going on just because of operational security and stuff like that. Um, looking back on it and looking back on your dad, sometimes they say that the commando gene jumps a generation, that all those kind of things where if they had a commando as a dad, maybe they wouldn't be one or there was a bad experience and they don't want to be one. But everything that you talk about seems like it was absolutely fantastic having that as a dad. So I wonder then, what was it that he instilled upon you at such an early age that made you want to do this, that made you love it? Yeah, so I, I've always uh, really looked up to my parents. Um, you know, uh, my, my parents have been married, um, you know, for over, over 30 years and uh, have a f fantastic uh, marriage and really set a good group good set of values on my sister and I at an early age. And I remember my dad, you know, kind of talking to me when I was probably seven, eight, nine years old. And, you know, the most important things of life were, were God, family, and country. And those were all things that really kind of hit home as I would see the dads, you know, collectively when we were in Germany would pick up and go out for a large training exercise or get activated. And then I also saw that the moms and the kids really had this really close-knit relationship when when the dads were gone and so for that it was kind of like oh this is unique does everybody share this you know one sense of patriotism um, but also the adventure the travel and living overseas and you know seeing my dad personally in uniform was one of those like he's fit good looking could speak german could you know could get along with anybody um, but was also looked at, you know, as, as a, an officer in the military, as somebody who was extremely competent and confident and people looked up to. And I was like, dang, that's kind of that's kind of neat. Um, I think I'd like to do something like that. And then to, to be also, you know, uh, you know, uh, late 80s, early 90s, like G.I. Joe's were the thing. Like, literally, I loved the G.I. Joe movie. And then, you know, I, I, I'd come back home and I'd play G.I. Joe's with my friends in the creek. And we would literally play army at, you know, Patch Barracks in, in Stuttgart. You'd be running all over, playing army, you know, eating an MRE, and you'd be camoed up. And, um, God, I remember one time uh, in my dad's BMW, we, like, found his rubber ducks from an exercise. And we we're like, oh, cool, like, you know, fake guns we can play with across the neighborhood. So we were, like, playing war 
in the neighborhood in Germany until one of the MPs came over and was like, hey, that kind of looks like a real weapon. We actually have to take that away from you guys. And I was grounded for like a week and a half because here we are running around like, you know, doing, uh, you know, raids and assault missions uh, over in, uh, you know, on base um, as like, you know, six and seven, eight year olds. And um, I'm like, ooh, that's kind of something we probably shouldn't be doing with uh, with rubber ducks that belong to our dads right now. So <laughs> I just want to point out something real quick. Uh, you can still watch G.I. Joe both on YouTube and on an app of streaming service. So I just want to put that out to you. Not saying that I watch it all the time, but I'm saying I watch it all the time. There's something cool about it. I'm not going to lie. There's something really cool about that, that show from the ni- 80s and 90s. As you do this and as you kind of grow up now, you said your dad was only stationed in Germany as special forces. Now, did you come back to the United States at all? Were you uh, stationed here or what did you kind of do after all that was said and done in Europe? Because you were only at that time, what, nine years old when it it, it ends? Yeah. So for us, it was it was like three years in Germany and like two or three years back stateside. And then it was kind of bouncing back and forth. Uh, I think we went from. Uh, a slew of places. We also lived uh, at Fort Smith, Arkansas. So my dad was stationed at Fort Chaffee. And in fact, he was actually standing up the first iteration of what's called special operations plans or soft plans, which is the same organization that now oversees and integrates into the Joint Readiness Training Center. Um, so I know we'll probably get, you know, maybe get into this a little bit later, but like I had the opportunity as an observer, coach, trainer years later when i'm now a special forces soldier myself to work with my dad at the same training venue where we would be in the same meetings briefing one another and then uh you know helping to uh, teach coach and mentor uh, special forces teams as they're coming through training scenarios so like it was really cool to kind of see the parallels of what special operations or you know green berets were actually doing in berlin during the cold war to uh, you know, deter, but also in the event the Soviets came over and, you know, it really, you know, moved into Germany, uh, started occupying, it was how do they, how do they resist and, uh, and slow down the maneuver so large conventional forces could actually come up, meet them head to head. And so it was really focused on resistance operations. And I, as a kid, I didn't know those things. I just thought it was really cool with, you know, kind of a flashy, you know, the uniforms, uh, the parachutes, being around large military things like, uh, you know, like Humvees and boats and then aircraft. And I was like, oh, man, this is kind of neat. Like not every kid has this opportunity. So it really did instill a, a good sense of patriotism, but also, you know, a, a sense of adventure for, for my, uh, my family and I. When you look back on it now, is there anything that you wish you could change about your childhood or is there anything you wish you would have maybe focused on a little more? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I, I, I had such a cool, cool childhood growing up overseas. Like we, I was in sports, into scouting, which was big into my family. Uh, my dad is a second generation Eagle Scout, so I became one years later. That was something we shared because um, that was something unique to his dad, uh, my grandfather, uh, who passed away at an early age from my dad. Not, so I never met him, but. Um, Really, it's it's uh, I grew up outside, uh, you know, learn to kind of like live off the land, play in the woods, you know, unique opportunities and then being competitive and then living in Germany. It's one of those like I was a German speaker in the school. So my friends were native Germans uh, or, or, you know, Greek, Greek, Greek kids who are in the German school themselves. And so like I was the only I was the American kid. It's kind of weird. 
And I got to invite kids over on, on base for things like Halloween and go trick or treating and go look at the Christmas lights, uh, you know, on, on base, which was kind of unique. So uh, if you ask us something that I would have changed, uh, you know, maybe spend a little bit more time overseas because we came back when I was in about middle school, um, went to the D.C. area. And then I kind of stayed through, you know, we stayed we stayed stateside from there as my uh, dad retired from the Pentagon. So. Was there ever an enlisted idea in your head or was it always you wanted to go down the officer route? You know, um, some of, in fact, I, I talked to many of his mentors and sergeants majors um, and, you know, really got a good understanding of what the, the non-commissioned officer brought to the table. Um, you know, I, I got to see kind of that, that uh, growth from a, you know, a really a soldier kind of initial phase into a special forces non-commissioned officer. I mean, these were the, these, these were the other dads I hung out with, um, you know, when I was a kid, other dads were green berets and the, you know, the occasional Navy seal that we had over there as well in Germany. And so I really got exposed to that at an early age. Um, uh, for me though, it was uh, whole family is a, you know, is multiple generations of Texas Aggies. And so I wanted to get the opportunity to, to one, pursue a degree in college, I wasn't completely sure the military was going to be a good fit for me. Uh, it was a little rebellious as a kid and, you know, needed some good structure. Um, but really, the, I think the officer route was the, the way to kind of um, uh, help me better understand how to emulate that leadership, but then also kind of bring that, uh, that level of responsibility to the table once I'd adapted and matured a little bit. So let's talk about that childhood of being however you were, rambunctious, whatever you want to call it. Like I said before, we both know Chuck, and if you hear Chuck's story of when he was a kid, it's crazy. It's crazy to see how he ended up. What I love about his story, though, is he's big on second chances, talking to someone, learning why they did something or maybe why they acted the way they did. When you look back on yours, what was it that, that you were really rowdy about or kind of unconventional then uh, and I kind of want to compare the stories to each other. Yeah, sure. So, uh, so DJ, so, um, I, you know, having, having a, uh, a dad who was in the military, obviously he brought that level of discipline and, um, you know, structure to the household, you know, right. um, it was, it was, yeah, it's, I'd say, uh, I had a little bit of a strict dad as a childhood <laughs> growing up as a child growing up. And, you know, for me, that was probably healthy. Uh, that was probably, the best way for me to, to kind of learn was a little, you know, you know, uh, all right, kind of snap into, into, into it. Um, so really when I got into high school, um, you know, you're, you're exploring things, you're trying to figure out where you fit in and, you know, how to be, I guess, a version of cool and like, you know, what kind of your identity is, uh, whether that's sports, whether that was for me, that was scouts and, you know, just kind of trying to figure out what it is you like and what you kind of gravitate towards. Um, so I, I, I had a, uh, you know, several mm, disciplinary times when I didn't make the best decisions. I maybe wasn't the most truthful kid to my parents. Um, I was trying to probably just see what I could get away with. And it wasn't anything crazy. It wasn't anything, you know, illegal or immoral, but just had a hard time uh, listening and, you know, making sure that I adhered to, to the advice of my parents. I remember one time actually, um, you know, I, I had uh, fibbed to my parents about where I was going out one night. This is in high school. And my mom is actually a math teacher at my high school. So she kind of figures out things before, uh, 
you know, she hears things through the rumor mill from other kids and other teachers. And it's like, oh man, you can't even keep secrets anymore. Um, but I got in trouble one time and I remember my, uh, my dad, you know, made a really good point to me. Um, you know, I had posters on in my room and, you know, and all those were kind of removed for me after I got in trouble. And I got, my dad printed off a, uh, a piece of computer paper. And on that piece of computer paper was a photo or kind of a picture of John Wayne. And at the very bottom, there was a quote that says, life is tough. It's tougher when you're stupid. <laughs> and that was tacked above my bed uh, for about, probably about 75 days. And this was winter time. I think it was a sophomore in high school. And I went like 16 and two in wrestling that season right there because I had nothing else to focus on, but eating, sleeping, uh, going to school and my academics, and then just competing on the mat for wrestling. And so for me, it was all the distractions were taken away. And as a rambunctious kid who was distracted by probably lots of things, you know, that was good for me to kind of, you know, get a little, you know, kick there of like, oh, okay, focus on something, work hard, you know, eliminate distractions, and then you can overcome and do very well. And um, at the end of the day, that's what's important. So that's just a little example of, of something right there. <laughs> so do you think you fell back on that in college, uh, in, in the qualifications course, in everything that you've done? Do you think you fell back on that at all? I, I think I did, actually. Um, you know, that's, that's for me, that was kind of like custom tailored discipline, which was a wake up call for me. Um, that's something that I, I think I really, it really hit home with me of if I eliminate distractions and I focus on something, focus on that goal and work hard for it, you dedicate time, you get up early, you, you eliminate everything else that's not important to it, you know, eat, sleep, breathe and drive. Um, and that's kind of what I think can really push you through that goal setting and then accomplishing those goals. And I would say I took that mentality in stride, you know, going into college. Um, you know, it's a good thing I joined the Corps of Cadets at Texas A&M because I probably would have had distractions and the structure, the forced study time, the forced, hey, you need to take account and put grades first. That's what kind of kept me in line. And then really that physical competition, you know, workouts twice a day, kind of smoke sessions when the group of cadets would get in trouble. You know, you compete with everybody around you to make you better. And that's what really drives me personally. Um, and so it's, it's, it's one of those, I think that uh, at an early age, I learned that those were the things that really want, made me want to like um, uh, be a member of a team, but also try to see if I could excel to the point and be respected as the, the captain of the team and then help build it and kind of push it along. Now, A&M, you're, you're kind of on your own for the first. Now, of course, you have the core cadets with you. You have something kind of keeping you aligned. But this is the first time that you're kind of on your own out in the world. Are you still thinking why you're going through the core cadets? Are you still thinking about doing that special operations, that military lifestyle? Um, because I know you said in the beginning you didn't know if it would be quite the fit. But as you start to see and look around you, is it becoming more and more a, a part of your identity? So just to step back real quick, uh, when I uh, when I was in high school, you know, so we're in uh, the Northern Virginia area. Uh, my dad's retired out of the Pentagon, and I have an older sister. She's two years older, and her name's Kelly. And um, you know, we're kind of looking at colleges, and 
the very first thing, so we come back from Germany. Uh, my sister's going into high school and I'm going, we're both going into high school. She's two years older. The very first time we were at Texas A&M was when the bonfire stack fell in uh, 1999. And the very first time I ever stepped foot on campus was about two days after the bonfire stack fell. And the, uh, the Aggie bonfire is a, a massive tradition dating back, uh, I think, for almost 100 years. And the bonfire symbolizes the burning desire to beat the hell out of the University of Texas, or TU. And regrettably, in 99, it actually fell uh, late night. and We lost 12 Aggies who, uh, who were killed during the incident. And my first time on campus was this sombering, really, really unique, but... Um, heartwarming time on campus that uh, the stack had just fallen 12 12 uh, uh, 12 members of the university had passed and you go to the game and it's it's this lingering thing in the back but it was this uh, incredibly memorable time that everybody came together across university of texas across texas a&m all around the thanksgiving rivalry football game and it was just almost this uh, this heartwarming time to be there and really see how the university pulled together so fast forward that really kind of was like, hey, um, this whole Aggie thing, I know my dad went there. I know my mom went there. I know my uncle went there. But this is kind of unique. I think I want to be part of something a little bit bigger than me and something that's special. And so fast forward, my sister wound up going there. And uh, again, we're in the D.C. area, and I've been offered an ROTC scholarship to, uh, to go to A&M. And originally I was like, you know what? I, I just don't know if it's for me, the haircuts, the uniforms. Um, I, I just didn't think it was something that I was really cut out for. And I was trying too much to be cool instead of realizing what an opportunity it was. And actually I initially turned down a scholarship opportunity. And then I talked to my dad, talked to my mom and they said, hey, just listen, you know, not everybody gets an opportunity like this. Consider it. Think of what you could do. Think of some of the leaders that you've met in your lifetime uh, and some of the mentors. And just think of the traits that they have. And if that's something that you think the core cadets can help you grow internally, then let's go. Let's try it. If not, no hard feelings. It's okay. Um, you know, you, you, we'd still love you to go to A&M if possible, but you don't have to be a member of the core. And I slept on it. I reflected it on it. And I said, you know what? I think things happen for a reason. I was offered this ROTC scholarship. Let's give it a shot. And so uh, I changed my, uh, my uh, acceptance and I did accept it. And um, so I wound up going there. And, uh, you know, going from the Northern Virginia area, you're like the only kid outside of the state of Texas to go to A&M. And people are like, you're from where? Where's Virginia? What's Washington, D.C.? Where is that at? Um, but what's really neat is my sister was there two years ahead of me, which, you know, she kind of uh, helped me adjust to the culture and then joining the core. It was instantly like, hey, this is something you can compete in. You're, you're automatically given like a group of friends that, um, you know, they're different. Everyone's coming from a, a small town or rural area or big city and within Texas, but they're all Texans. And you're kind of this anomaly coming from Virginia. So. It was unique for me. I got a lot of, I would say, kind of cool attention and the sense that people were interested on, you know, what's what's the East Coast is like and what's Northern Virginia like and, you know, what's it like being a military brat. And I, I really liked it. I liked the uh, 
I like the camaraderie. I like the fellowship and I like the challenge. And I think that's kind of the theme there is I saw an opportunity to try out for something. The Corps of Cadets is a smaller club within the greater A&M student body. And I was like, you know what, let's be part of something unique. And I think I'd like to try that. And again, that's, that's one of those where I was like, you know, if, uh, if I try it and don't like it, I could probably quit, but I don't know how to quit. And I don't really, that's not really in my vocabulary because my parents instilled that at an early age. So we're going to try it and we're just going to rock it and we're going to make it unique in our own. And it'll be cool in its own way. And I loved it. I had a blast. And uh, some of my closest friends now are, uh, you know, uh, are my roommates from Texas A&M and the core. Um, I go back regularly for football games. I go back to see friends. I'm on campus and I'm excited to expose my kids to it because it's such a unique place um, that it really runs in our family. And I like that. With this ROTC program, I'm not sure really how it works at the end, how you get your branch or anything like that. So can we walk through that? And then I want to walk through the heartbreak that was what you received at the end of it. But it ended up with everything, like I say about you, it ended up working out for you in the end. So uh, let's talk about how they branch, what happened to you, and then what you kind of did to correct the problem. Yeah, DJ, I'm a firm believer that everything happens for a reason. And, uh, you know, luck favors the prepared, right? Um, so the branch assessment is, you know, across for all the ROTC cadets across the nation, of which Texas A&M is a senior military college, like Texas, uh, like Virginia Tech, like the Citadel, like VMI. It just happens to be the largest. And then I would argue it's the most prestigious, but that's my biased opinion. But um, yeah, so, you know, you, you go, uh, your grades obviously are inclusive in how you're assessed by the Army for your branch. Um, and you go perform at uh, what's called the Leadership Development Assessment Camp or LDAC or Warrior Forge as we knew it back then. And it's, it's really your summer camp where you go show off the skills that you've learned uh, from being a freshman, sophomore, and junior. And then you're evaluated on you know, your ability to do those things, leadership, land navigation, team building, uh, physical training tests, all the things that you've really built up for the past few years. So long story is um, all those things come together and, you know, during an assess- a session's day, you really fill out kind of your, you know, one to end the preferences of the Army branch you want to go. And obviously, so I graduated in 2007. So this is like around 2006. You're filling out, you know, infantry and maneuver, uh, and, and, you know, armor and field artillery, the combat arms kind of during the height of Iraq and Afghanistan are a lot of the branches that guys are most excited about because that's, you know, very September 11th, people are excited to have the opportunity to go overseas. Um, so for me, it was, I think it was spring of 2007 or you know, early 2007. What they do is um, they brought everybody into all the seniors uh, who are assessing their branch or, you know, finding out their branch. They brought them into a room. And we had a few West Point cadre members um, who I think kind of brought a tradition from the academy. But what they did is I think there was probably about 80 of us who were going to graduate and commission at that time. So they handed us an envelope and everybody's envelope had their name on it. So mine was, you know, about to be second lieutenant Bobby Tuttle. And inside the envelope is a, you know, three by five note card 
and punched through the three by five note card is your branch insignia, you know, the pins you wear on your uniform, your formal uniform. And so they hand them out to everybody, you know, kind of sit in the middle of a sea of 80 people who are going to commission later on this year. And, you know, people are looking up, holding the envelopes up to the light, trying to see what's through it, trying to see, you know, see those crossed, uh, cross rifles and stuff. And, you know, so our professor of military science, a great mentor of mine, Colonel Sam Hawes, yeah, you know, he makes some kind of comments in the sense that, uh, hey, guys, we're really proud of all you guys have accomplished. The Army has some great things ready for you. And, you know, whatever you get, you're going to do phenomenally at it. You're well prepared and you guys are going to be great leaders of character for our Army. So on the count of three, you know, one, two, three, open your envelopes. And so the guy, you know, to my left, Rippins opens his envelope and he's like, yeah, aviation. And the guy to my right, you know, he rips his open. And he's like, infantry. And the next guy, you know, my other buddy is just like, all right, you know, medical service corps. And I open mine and I look at it and I'm dumbfounded. And I, I elbow the guy next to me. And I goes, dude, what is this? <laughs> he goes, Bobby. That's the chemical core. And I literally stood up and I started to walk out. You know, tears are swelling in my eyes. And, uh, you know, Colonel Sam Hawes, <laughs> he grabs me on the shoulder and he goes, Hey, Bobby, are you okay? And I said, Yes, sir. I, w- I wasn't expecting this. He goes, Don't worry. You know, everything happens for a reason. You're going to do great things. And I will connect you with some phenomenal chemical officers to talk to you about what this branch is about. I said, Yes, sir. And then the rest of the group who got what they wanted all went out to Northgate, which is kind of our bar bar area at College Station, Texas, on the north side of uh, of uh, campus. And I, I I went back to my room and I uh, I kind of boohooed a bit because I was not sure what the Chemical Corps had in store for me. So I was heartbroken, um, to be to say the least. I wanted to be a an infantryman or really kind of a, a maneuver guy. Um, something combat arms related because that was cool that was sexy ruck marches and camo and you know airborne stuff and uh, i just had no idea what the chemical core was and so initially i was like holy smokes my army career is going to be terrible and i was really hurt about it (laughs) so that's that's how i found out um but uh i would say through a series of fortunate events um you know I, i found a great path and uh, it, things worked out really, really well. So I, I want you to say it, and I want you to be honest. Did you ever shed a tear after you saw it? Oh, yeah, wholeheartedly. Yeah. Really? Was, you know, big, big alligator tears. Did oh, yeah. uh, I, did any of your buddies say anything? Did you catch shit for it? Did anything happen? You know, it was one of those where, you know, I, I, I thought I had done really well at, you know, at the uh, advanced camp. I think I was ranked extremely highly. I was like number two in our entire regiment. Um, I was very involved on campus in ROTC stuff. You know, in, in all of my ROTC military science classes, I was like the A student. Um, but I was a, a business major at Texas A&M, and I had not performed well in account- accounting or finance classes. Uh, I wound up being a marketing major, which was pretty cool, but I would say my grades were not as high as I had hoped. And that's probably the number one thing that hurt me was that, yeah, hey, you you, you rocked all the other things, the army things, but like, you know, 45 or 50% of your, what weighs into your sessions for the branch is 
you know, your grades. And if you don't have, you know, high grades, you don't have, you know, good grades and, you know, you're going to hurt for it because that's what makes you competitive. All right. So you get chemical, but by a strange, I, I want to go back real quick though. Uh, and I was thinking about it as you were talking. So you graduate 2007. So you what start college 2002, 2003. Yeah. Uh, fall 2003. Yeah. Okay, so you're what a junior when nine eleven happens? Junior in high school? Uh, I was a, I was a junior in high school, and uh, yeah, right outside Washington D.C. And uh, of which, so when the Pentagon got hit, my dad, who I told you uh, had retired out of the Pentagon, he uh, he was actually in Crystal City. Um, you know, so we're twenty minutes outside the city. My dad's office actually got hit. Um, they were supposed to be there, but because of the towers getting hit, you know, uh, I think about 45 minutes earlier before the Pentagon did, you know, everything had got shut down and the meetings they were supposed to head to were count, you know, canceled. Um, so very much, you know, September 11th, uh, truly hit home for me. I remember coming home from high school and my mom was a math teacher at my high school. So everybody kind of found out at the exact same time. Uh, I came home, you know, there was no cell service, couldn't get a hold of my dad. Um, he wound up, uh, you know, basically going with his team from Crystal City over the other side of the highway to the Pentagon and just helping be first responders. You know, they were finding people to help give blood and just fitting in wherever they could, knowing that there was pretty catastrophic on the scene, but also, you know, trying to make sure they, they stayed out of the way of the true first responders who were activated. Um, so that was one of those where it was like, holy shit, um, does this hit really close to home? And, you know, there was a lot of mixed emotions, frustration, anger, sadness, um, uh, inspiration to do something and be part of something. And that's probably one of the continued uh, sparks that helped set me on the path for, uh, for the Army itself. So let's talk about that for a minute, because that seems to be where your story kind of splits for me. Um, you say that you had anger, uh, sadness, all these things. Your dad was across the highway. Uh, he took part at the Pentagon. Your senior year, you're thinking, man, I'm not going to take that ROTC scholarship. I don't know if that's the life for me. Then you take it. You want to go infantry. Uh, that doesn't quite work out for you. But it seems like it flows back and forth with you. Um, is it hard to keep your mind in the game and keep going for that end goal when things like that happen? Because it seems to me, and I think you would agree, that that it switched back and forth with you a lot before you ended up where you're at now. Yeah, it totally did. And, I, you know, for me, I think one of the big things was, uh, you know, I had a dad who uh, who was a you know, career service member. And so for me, it was like, wow, that's, you know, that's 20 plus years. Like I'm, I'm, I'm 18 years old. I think the bigger question was, did I want to make a career out of it at the time or just uh, be a, you know, a, a, a member who served for a few years okay, and then you know, maybe figure something else out. And so for me, it was, it, I, I couldn't even fathom only joining the military for, you know, uh, for, for, you know, I guess initial service obligation. It to me, it was like, Oh, it's, that's actually a whole career. And, um, when I realized that if you took the ROTC scholarship and again, you know, could be part of something bigger and, you know, you, you'd found your niche within the army. If it, 
wasn't quite what you wanted or you felt like you had accomplished what you wanted to, you know, you didn't have to stay in for the entirety of a 20 year career. You could do your obligation or what you had signed up and volunteered for. And then you could, you know, you know, gracefully find something else to do as, a, as another per, career progression as well. And so I think that was my thing as I was fixated and I was like, yeah, it's kind of like a, a 20 year plan. I'm only 18 years old. Like, I don't, I don't even know like what I want to eat to, for dinner tomorrow night, let alone decide what, uh, if I want to be in a, a uniform service member for the next 20 something years and get a haircut. I really wasn't big in the whole haircut and shaving. Thing, <laughs> well, I, I can tell. Uh, but if you think about it now, like you look at it now as I'm older, I'm, I'm approaching 50 and I think 20 years, you'd be 38 years old and you're done like, you know, or, or 42, however you want to do it when you graduate from college, 18, if you join 22, when you're out of college, let's go into your career a little though. Cause this is where it gets interesting. You're a chemo, uh, you're assigned to second battalion first special forces group. So you're a support element. You're an enabler. Um, you go there and you get to see all this stuff around you. Are you happy that you're there and on the ground and learning what you're learning? Because I know at some point you were saying that they'd take you to the range and teach you. You'd get them a case of beer and all that kind of stuff. So let's talk about you getting assigned there and really kind of catching a great break in your career by being assigned there. So, so that's, that kind of goes back to the, um, Hey, you know, luck, luck favors the prepared. Right. Um, I, I was a chemo, uh, and you know, the chemical officer basic course, which was a blast. I had so much fun bugs and gas. Like that was actually really cool course. Like absolutely dope. I thought I was going to be Stanley Goodspeed from the rock. You know, that's what I told people. I was like, yeah, I'm pretty much like a chemical biologist. And like, I work with, you know, like all sorts of nerve agents, but um, I got the opportunity to uh, to try out for Ranger School. Um, I was fortunate enough to get to earn a Ranger School slot out of the Officer Basic course when I was at Fort uh, Leonard Wood, Missouri. And essentially, uh, the Chemical Corps itself had not had a guy go through Ranger School and pass in a couple of years. So I go to go to Ranger School, which is cool. Um, I go down. I, I do well. I, I pass Ranger School. But uh, I'm slated to go to Germany as my first assignment to 1st Armor Division over in Baumholder, Germany. But during my time in Ranger School, I get held up and I get recycled in Florida. You know, it's like a 10-day recycle, not, not long at all. But I missed my report date to get to my first duty assignment. And my household goods have already been picked up, but they haven't been shipped yet. And then I, like, I graduate from Ranger School. My dad comes down, pins my tab on me. And I'm like, I, like, what do I do? Like, I have no idea what to do because I've missed my report date. I don't have a flight. I don't know how to show up. Like, what, what do I do? And so I go back to my, uh, my parents' house in D.C. And um, I graduate on a Friday and I, I call up Human Resources Command and, and, the, and the, uh, the Chemical Corp branch. And they're like, hey, check it out. Like, you're in D.C. Uh, coming home on leave. Come visit us in the, you know, in the in, in D.C. You know, come, come to the, to the, uh, the branch headquarters. And we'll, we'll see you on Monday. So I show up Monday, I've got like chubby cheeks, a bald head, because I just finished up Florida phase of Ranger School and I'm stuffing my face. And uh, I show up and the colonel there is like, wow, like, all right, we've got a chemical core graduated Ranger School stud and who you don't, you don't have a unit to go to. Well, your unit in Germany has actually been deflagged and completely deactivated. So you can either go to Germany if you'd like, or... You can tell me right now where else you would like to go. He says, Lieutenant Tuttle, what would you like to do? 
And I swear that those words have probably never been said more than a few times in anyone's army career, you know? <laughs> so I was like, all right, uh, I'd love to go to a, a special operations assignment. That'd be cool. Right. Cause I know that every soft unit or, or SF unit has a battalion chemical officer and uh, the, the Lieutenant Colonel or the Colonel looks at the, uh, the roster and goes, all right, cool. We have an opening coming up at second battalion, first special forces group. Would you like to go to Fort Lewis, Washington? I say, yes, sir. He goes, would you like to take 30 days of leave and route? I say, absolutely, sir. He's like, all right, cool. Uh, you're going to first special forces group, pack your bags, and you show up in 30 days. So I kind of like refit. So I had the opportunity, which was completely unique, to say where I wanted to go because I had earned a ranger tab as a chemo. And for me, that was kind of neat because somebody had asked me, what would you like to do? And so I got the opportunity to show up to uh, to second battalion and I get up there. And uh, what's neat is they have, you know, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan and the southern Philippines, which is, you know, Operation Enduring Freedom Philippines. And so I'm, I show up and they, uh, the battalion XO, uh, who, who's a good friend of mine now and a, ma- a, a mentor of mine, him and his wife. But uh, it's uh, Major Josh Walker. And he's like, Bobby, all right, we're going to put you to good work. And he gives me all these additional tasks. I'm a bushy-tailed chemo, and I'm figuring them out. I'm knocking down targets. And about 30 days later, the uh, battalion executive officer, so Major Walker, and like one of the company commanders, uh, Jeremiah Labaca, come back, and they go, "Hey, I hear there's a SEER school slot down at Fort Rucker. Let's send the new chemo." So they send me to the Survival Evasion Resistance Escape School. Again, another opportunity where I'm like, "Yep." Let's do it. I'd love to. Sounds like a challenge. I'm excited. And a uh, long story is having gone through a few things, cutting my teeth and again, volunteering for things that were a little bit tough. But, um, you know, keeping my head down, staying humble about it and being surrounded by people who saw potential in me. Um, the next thing they said, hey, you're going to deploy to the southern Philippines and serve as a special forces company executive officer. I said, sir, where the hell is the Philippines? I I don't even know where that is at. Can you show it to me on a map? But uh, had the opportunity to uh, to go deploy, which was probably the coolest thing for me. And from there, um, you know, continued to to kind of try to make my name for myself within the unit and just uh, find out where I could fit in and be a contributor. And you know, um, you know, really kind of work my butt off to see where I could help out the unit. So that's kind of that's kind of how I uh, I found my way into uh, the initial. Uh, times within first special forces group two things come up with that when you talk about that one uh you're not long tabbed uh when you go there right you you got your ranger tab you've been to seer school all those kind of things but you're you're not long tabbed um let's talk about how that is kind of being in command and not being a long tab if there was any kind of you know kickback on that or anything like that and then, two, I want you to kind of talk about the Philippines, how much counterterrorism stuff was actually happening in the Philippines, because I don't think a lot of people know about that. Um, they they talk about it, but there was a lot of missions going on over there. Yeah, ton, tons of missions. And that was, that was, you know, 2008, 2009. That was, that was the height of uh, Operation Enduring Freedom Philippines, which was unique to First Special Forces Group. Um, so to kind of answer your first question, though, DJ, is, you know, I, I was a company executive officer in the sense that, uh, you know, that's usually filled by a senior uh, special forces officer, kind of a senior captain. 
And um, I, I mean, I, I couldn't even tell you like what the heck a battalion even looked like, let alone a special forces company. But um, I was surrounded by really, really good uh, leaders who I think, you know, they, they, um, they saw maybe a little bit of me, uh, you know, them in me, you know, from their, their kind of time as, as lieutenants. Um, I, I volunteered for everything. I was hungry. I was, I was humble about it. And I tried to be as smart as possible or at least ask good questions and see where I could fit in, even though I didn't know mostly anything about a special operations unit. Um, and so for me, it was really, hey, just, just be a contributor um, and then always move to the sound of gunfire. You know, hey, if there's an opportunity, you know, go prepare and then be value added to it. And, you know, as, as uh, I'm not a long tab guy, uh, you know, our soft truth that folks says, hey, uh, most special operations require special operations support. I was very much a support guy or an enabler, but I had guys who invested in me, let me come to the range, let me jump, let me tag along. And I asked questions, I observed, I saw what good special forces teams looked like, how they treated one another, but also I respected how they treated me as a, you know, young, naive, you know, support individual. And I tried to emulate that years later as an actual special forces soldier. Um, there's so many good people out there that uh, are part of the mission and part of the, you know, really part of, part of the, uh, the task organization, they're part of the team, and they need to be treated like that. And so guys treated me really well. Um, not everybody, I, I caught a lot of shit. You know, I got, I got harassed a little bit. Um, I made a lot of mistakes, you know, and that was cool. That was okay because it was all learning for me. But yeah, guys would be like, hey, you know, you know Lieutenant Tuttle, come to the range with us. Uh, but also when you don't say thanks and you forget to, to clean up brass at the end of it, we're going to tell you you're fucked up. We're going to tell you you're messed up. And so it was one of those like, oh, yeah, um, just remember those, uh, the senior non-commissioned officers, you know, know what they're doing. and They're a wealth of knowledge. Um, soak it up. And then kind of getting to the Philippines, you know, I, I went over. It was I was there over the holidays in 2008. I, I was learning as many Tagalog phrases as I could. Um, I had the opportunity to be down in uh, you know, the southern, Phyllis, southern Philippines, so Mindanao, which is the highly contested area with trans-regional trans terrorists. You have Islamic, uh, Islamic state organizations, um, and the, every single organization almost has like a branch off. You know, you have one organization that would reach a peace agreement with the government, and then half the organization would be really upset with the peace agreement. So they would fraction and start their own umbrella organization. And that was quite common. And so for me, it was, wow, there are some really bad people down here who are kidnapping, killing, attacking, hunting, and then moving people weapons, equipment, and drugs in and out to fund their operations. And so I really got a good understanding of how that was working trans-regionally. I saw how first special force group was postured to counter that and then used language and cultural abilities to establish rapport with the locals, to figure out where the bad guys were operating and who they were, and then really to help bring stability to like the region and help the people, you know, with life support type entities like food, water, medical supplies that a special forces team can do in an austere environment. One real cool story is uh, I happened to be there when Manny Pacquiao fought Oscar De La Hoya. 
And if you want to talk about a true national hero on the global stage, but a national hero of the Philippines, Oscar De La Hoya uh, was was like the uh, one, one of the, the title fighters and this no name left handed Filipino kind of a scrapper whose rags to riches story uh, had the opportunity to fight him. And what was really neat is we're sitting in the operations center in the Southern Philippines, triple canopy jungle everywhere. And the Abu Sayyaf group that uh, was really, we were there to counter, um, they, they had like a 24 hour ceasefire with the Filipino security forces and the Americans and everybody just watched the fight. I mean, the fight was in Vegas, but everyone's huddled. We're we're in our operations center with every TV on watching the fight. And I just picture, you know, the the Abu Sayyaf group and the you know, the terrorist organizations are like in triple canopy jungle under tarps, you know, huddled under some TV with like a little antenna trying to get the fight on HBO. And uh, it was pretty cool to see how a national hero like that could literally stop the fighting for a day and uh and bring kind of stability just for that period of time so that the pride you know really kind of filtered down through every person who was in that country when you see stuff like that as a special forces uh still at this time you're you're still not actually special forces but you're assigned with them but you see war conflict combat differently you would agree than big army would and, and with a story like that you just told, you're seeing it on a different scale. Um, you're there to counter a certain group. That group says, we're going to hold a moratorium. We're not going to fight. And it stops. Now, of course, that's happened in Big Army before. But do you agree during your whole career with special operations that you've seen a different kind of war than a lot of people have? Yeah, I, I think the way that special operations sees it, you know, it's you, you're, you're, you're working with the populace. You're working with the people. And then you're you're side by side with your partner force. For example, um, we had Filipinos on our base, you know. So AFP, Armed Forces of the Philippines, um, Army were who are actually kind of our our, uh, our security force around us, and then our special operations elements that were working with our special forces teams. So you have Filipino special forces and our American special forces working side by side, and you are seeing it firsthand. You go out to a village. And you've seen where the terrorist organizations have come through, um, have either you know raided the organiz- raided the village, um, have maybe kidnapped or done some pretty horrific things to people in the village, and then have you know stolen, looted just to fund their own operations. And you're seeing the aftermath of that, and you're saying, "Holy smokes! Like this, this happens to these innocent people who are here, and it's happening to them because they have no way of protecting themselves. They have no way of fighting back." And any opportunity that they try to push back or fight back, they're probably going to get really bad things that are going to happen to them or their family members. And hearing some of the stories, seeing some of the faces, um, you got you got to think. I'm I'm like a 23 year old, like very you know, clean shaven, doesn't look like a you know kind of a, a you know a, a battle hardened special forces soldier. So I, I look a little bit different, um, you know, physically to some of the villagers. And it's one of those where I feel like I felt a, a lot of sympathy there. I felt like they opened up a little bit more to me, or at least I would get a lot of the looks of kind of the help. But we're also thankful that you're here. Thanks for being here and away from 
you know, away from your home to help us out. And so really kind of getting back to your question, DJ, is I, I think my first exposure to counterterrorism was very, uh, it, it hit home in the sense that you saw it all around you, saw it where you drove to. And yeah, bullets weren't flying at the time. You know, massive IEDs weren't going off. And you could walk around and feel like you weren't going to get shot. But you knew that there was some bad things going on at the place you had just been. And you just wanted to help. And you wanted to do more than um, than just build up, you know, build security for them. You wanted to help them eliminate the threats that were around them. All right. So compare and contrast that to Iraq and Afghanistan, because you're still part of Operation Iraqi Freedom. You still do enduring freedom for Afghanistan. So let's compare and contrast that to the Philippines, because I think that's going to open your eyes even more to this world and how it's changed and the actual GWAT that's going on. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it, what you're doing in uh, in the Philippines isn't completely kinetic, right? Um, you are you're learning what life support you can bring to the area. You're helping provide better opportunities to the terrorist organizations who are trying to fund their operations through things like KFR, kidnaps for ransom, and so you know, really, you're you're getting at almost that diplomatic side of it and the economic side in these tiny little fishing villages in the Southern Philippines, which again, they're they're like little spots on the map, but the people, the tribes have lived there forever. You know, the people have grown up there and they don't know any better. And this is their livelihood. And so for me, you know, the face of war looked like, um, you know, the the oppressed, uh, oppressed villagers in the Southern Philippines that you're just like, hey, whatever I can do to help you feel more comfortable, safe, secure, and not feel threatened and just be, you know, live out your daily life. That's what we were looking to try to do. And again, you're doing it by, you know, going out and providing medical support, um, helping people build, you know, uh, um, uh, fish farms so they can provide, you know, fish and food and sustainment for like the local village themselves and do things other than going out and working terrorist type activities to fund their operations. And if you give somebody a better opportunity and a better life, and you give them a better life for their family, they're more willing to lay down their weapon because they want to live as well. People want to live. They want to have a livelihood and a family, and they want to you know, grow old um, and enjoy their way of life. And so if you can provide that a little bit more to them, then I think you've done a good job at the end of the day. And so that's one of those things when you kind of see the parallels to Iraq and Afghanistan is, you know, a lot of that was just eliminating people off the battle space. And um, yeah, that still needs to happen too. You know, there's some bad people out there that probably shouldn't be around. But if you give people a better livelihood, I think they're more willing to uh, to cooperate and, you know, continue to want to, uh, to live a better life in support of their family and then their neighbors and the people around them. But would you say all three of those are different kinds of conflicts, Afghanistan compared to Iraq, compared to the Philippines? Yes, you're taking chess pieces off the, the board, but you would agree there are three different kinds of combat, right? They're, they're completely different. Each one of them requires a deep, deep sense of understanding. Each one of them requires its own you know level of preparedness of who you're going to deal with. And the tribal aspects, the uh, the governmental aspects, um, and then you know really getting to know culturally the people and the historics of the region. Completely different ways to approach it. Um, 
in the sense that like, yeah, it's, 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 those are three completely separate conflicts. Uh, again, Operation Enduring Freedom fell under the umbrella of, oh, sorry, Philippines fell under the umbrella of OEF, Operation Enduring Freedom, but very different conflict, very much still about relationships, um, about building partner capacity, and then trying to bring stability to the region through means that were less kinetic or less, uh, you know, less lethal and trying to help people live a better life. So let me play devil's advocate for a minute. With the Philippines, they pretty much got along with you and and you said you were trying to show them a better life. Let's compare it to Iraq, Afghanistan. Did you at any point ever feel like maybe that want and desire that you saw in the Philippines wasn't necessarily there from the people there? Or is that a crazy thing to think? No, I, I think uh, what we were encountered mostly in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I, I saw that kind of just, you know, my, my own lens during my, my times there were, hey, these were some generational differences that we're never going to get past. Um, you know, these were some generational differences that, um, you know, collectively we as the U.S. military had, um, you know, broken things or, or possibly, uh, you know, uh, uh, killed people in the battle space where, People are going to remember that for a very long time, and they're going to have that level of disdain for you, no matter what try to you know, what, what try to bring to the table in the sense of providing them a better livelihood. You know that that hits deep, right? You know, um, people people remember bloodshed. People remember, um, you know, what it is and how they felt when they either lost somebody or they saw, you know, their village or their their tribal region, um, you know, uh, crumble. And I think that's one of those in the sense that in the Philippines, we hadn't been doing that. There, there was no um, large, large scale campaigns to to uh, get rid of people and, um, you know, really kind of uh, disrupt the, uh, the the networks there in the sense you were moving people, but not like large scale. I think in our, what we did in Iraq and Afghanistan and kind of my lens there, it was yeah, uh, we may not get over these uh, and it may take years or generations to do so. And so, yeah, I think those are three completely separate conflicts of which I did have the opportunity to participate in all three. And uh, they all were approached very differently and uh, had to be prepared for very differently. How do you get your mind state right when you go from a place like the Philippines where they want a better life, they want a better uh a government, an organization, family life, all those kind of things. And then you go into an Iraq and Afghanistan and you say that people don't forget about the bloodshed and stuff, but there were truly people that didn't want us there, that didn't feel we should be there. And it kind of goes both ways. The bloodshed isn't forgotten on the other side either. And when you see people that don't necessarily want us there when we're doing the job that we're doing, uh, how do you deal with that in your mind and make that okay and still think that you're accomplishing a worthy goal and a worthy mission? I think the way to approach that was, you know, we're continuing to make progress, right? Um, very much of what we were doing in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, initially, uh, you know, post-September 11th was uh, ensuring that something like that did not happen again. And then, you know, years later, so I, I didn't deploy to Iraq until 2009, and then Afghanistan was 10 and then 13 again, um, was that, hey, we, we had made progress in the sense that uh, the our homeland, you know, the United States of America, 
you know, the, the threat and the complex attack that we had seen, uh, you know, stateside, things like that couldn't happen again because we had taken care of it or we had done a good job of disrupting the, the networks that they couldn't, you know, uh, could not, you know, perform another complex attack on the, on the homeland. So that's kind of one way of thinking it. Another way was that, um, hey, we've been there for so long that we had developed these relationships and had, you know, really helped to build a democratic government that was going to be able to sustain itself for you know, a long period of time and, you know, would bring progress, construction, um, you know, opportunities to Iraq and Afghanistan in separate capacities. And that's one of the things I think that, you know, in, in you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, um, you know, those were, those were, you know, exciting. Those were kind of cool things that we could say. We're making progress. We were seeing it. You were seeing construction. You were seeing women going to school. You were seeing, uh, you know, schools being built. And I would say a, you know, modern sense of uh, life and a modern sense of progress and education that was visible to to the you know the soldiers overseas and as special forces soldiers in those you know those, those years as well you know you're you're living with you know your your afghan or iraq counterparts you're seeing it firsthand you're reading the intel reports and you know stability to the region means no attacks stability to that area that region means you've disrupted the network of moving drugs weapon equipment and you know men you know in and out through through kind of the, uh, the the rat lines, and so as those were kind of I guess dwindling or being disrupted, it was like okay, cool, you know, we're making great progress here, and I'm seeing it because we are not having you know uh, larger scale attacks. We're not we're not seeing as many people or as much movement, and so it's almost like that visible, you know, okay, things are things are you know going pretty well, and I feel like we're accomplishing things. And therefore, it's it's uh, it's kind of, you know, it's a warm, good feeling that, of the things that we're doing there. And when I ask about stuff like that, I look at it because I've said it a ton of times before. You can't help but get jaded in jobs that we do. First responder, police, fire, military. You can't help but get a little jaded. And I think everyone does. And so when I ask that question, I look at when you're trying to do a good thing and you're trying to make positive change happen and you can't get it through or you can't kind of get to the finish line of it, it starts to be a very frustrating situation, whether that be certain parts of a city where you're having, uh, you know, spikes in crime and you can't get them down no matter what happens because you're not getting that partnership with the people around you. And I know that happened for you a little bit in all of these countries. How do you not get jaded from it? Or do you think that you did become a little jaded of it? Yeah, that's a really good question, DJ. Um, so yeah, I had the opportunity to uh, to go overseas. You know, I deployed to combat, um, I, which I would say I, I didn't experience. You know, combat. Um, I, I listened to you know several of the other you know uh, guests you've had as well, and of course my good friend Chuck. And you know the uh, you know the the the, the gunfights and really the kinetic operations and the controlling aircraft at multiple uh, echelons and, and bringing fires down on the battlefield. Those were things I didn't experience. I was prepared for, uh, you know, trained for, but didn't have the opportunity to experience those. For me, that's probably a great thing. Um, but so for me, I don't know if it was jaded or if it was, you know, in the regions that I was during those specific times, 
things were not incredibly kinetic. Things weren't, you know, things weren't terribly scary. Um, and, you know, they, they weren't as, uh, as visibly, you know, I guess, um, as visibly catastrophic as some of the other places that we've seen across, you know, across Iraq and Afghanistan. So maybe for me, it was, um, you know, I, I had a good lens on it. And during my time there deployed, I would read about a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the more kinetic things. But for us, it was like, okay, I think we've accomplished something. And I think we have brought, you know, quote unquote, stability, because we weren't being actively attacked. Uh, outside the occasional mortar. We weren't being seen complex ambushes. Uh, anytime we went outside the wire with our partner force, you know, we, we anticipated getting hit, but it never happened. And so those were the, okay, may, maybe we did make some good progress here. And maybe that is being jaded a bit. Um, but again, for me, it was like, okay, if I'm not seeing it firsthand and we're not, you know, actively kind of seeing in our intelligence summaries, then maybe we have made this that little bit of progress in the region that has made a difference um, and maybe that's, you know, that's the good progress that we've made forward. So let me play devil's advocate to you again. Send it. I, I, I know that you and Chuck joke a lot when you're on the show and stuff, but I want to ask you a, a very serious question in the form of how you approach it with Chuck. Do you think that's the standard command answer? Do you think that's the standard officer answer where you say, yeah, I think we're doing good things. Here's my buzzword. Here's my buzzword. We're doing good things here. We're moving these things here. And overall, we're doing a great job because I'm telling you, I see it in law enforcement and, and I joke with you about that because you're an officer and I know that you take it very well from Chuck about this, but do you almost think it? maybe that's that jadedness coming out of me when I hear someone say, we're doing good things, we're moving in the right direction. It all sounds like buzzwords. And I don't know if there's any physical something you can touch to go, that's how we know we made a difference. Yeah, that's that's one of those things is, um, yep, you know, if you kind of ask the people in the region, it's like, all right, you know, have we made progress here? It's like, I, I have no idea what they'd actually say. You know, coming from from Chuck, Chuck would probably say something along the lines of like, yep, Bobby, you're just at the wrong time and all the cool shit was happening around you. And you just you just missed it, bro. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what he would say. You, you know, he, you know, Chuck would say he'd probably be like, yeah, actually, uh, you know, Major Tuttle, we just moved you uh, to the Plan B site so we could go in a gunfight over here because we wanted to get it. And we knew you weren't good with a fucking pistol. That's probably what Chuck would say. Um, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's one of those, like, um, you know, not, not to be kind of like warm and fuzzy or anything. It's just, um, I, I genuinely think that the work that was done, um, as far as, you know, quote unquote building capacity is like, okay, you know, you, you stand up a village, village stability element and, you know, they're not getting attacked. They're, they're well-trained, they're organized. And, you know, it, it might be fighting season, but like no one's coming out to mess with them. Maybe they're just waiting for us to, to leave the area. And, um, you know, then kind of go into like a, a, a latent incipient phase. We're like, all right, you know, the SF special forces team can move on and then we're going to come up and we're going to annihilate the people you guys just trained. Um, that, that didn't happen either. But, you know, for me, it's, it's one of those like, all right, you know, I, I think that we actually did make some decent progress, um, during our time there. Uh, we spent a lot of time getting to know the population and then we spent a lot of time messaging that we had trained our force, our partner force very well. And then we would go out with a presence of them and kind of show, right? A show of, of what we had done. 
um, the large force we had built, and we would, you know, really kind of make sure that our Afghan partners uh, were going out and doing, you know, engagements with the village, just saying, you know, that the buzzwords, hey, we're here to protect you guys, we're here to help out, but we're also here for the righteous cause of helping making sure that you guys have a better life in this specific region. You know, we want to make sure that generationally your kids can grow up, your kids can have access to these wells, your kids can continue to use the schools, and that your women and children aren't, you know, aren't afraid of, you know, bad things happening to them. And so we just tried to make sure that it was as genuine as possible, that people felt and, um, you know, our talking points that like, you know, they, they felt compelled to, to provide us information. They felt comfortable with us around and that, you know, they knew that if something bad were to happen, that we would come out and we would work to protect them because that was the region that we were, you know, meant to provide stability to. So it kind of, kind of going around there is, you know, maybe, maybe I'm a bit jaded in the sense that, you know, um, that none, none of the sexy fun stuff had happened that you would see about in the movies. But what felt really good and what felt uh, like we had accomplished things is that we had developed really good relationships, from our opinion, with the locals. Um, you know, the, the village elders, the uh, during our, any of our, uh, our, uh, our meetings, um, you know, they would come talk to us regularly and let us know what was going on. And then we were never we never felt like it was corrupt. We never felt like we were um, uh, tricked. We never felt like, you know, anybody was really out there to get us because we had done them wrong. So I said all that to say this in the end. And you brought up Afghanistan. So this this is where I'm moving with all of this. I think that we did phenomenal stuff. Afghanistan, Iraq, all over the world. We always have. That is the spirit of America. But you talk to guys that were over there and did these things and saw their buddies die. There's so many stories to go through on that. And then we left the way we did. Not because of the military. Not because of the command in the military. Because people that shouldn't have been making those decisions made those decisions. And when you just talked about those village stability operations where you had chiefs coming and talking to you and people that, that felt comfortable giving you information, all of that goes into the shitter when you leave because they look and they go, we trusted you. You said you were here. And by no means is it the soldier on the ground's fault. They spent all of that time, that blood, that sweat, that tears to build that up for someone who shouldn't have been making the decision to come back in and go, we did a great job. Now we're leaving and everything falls apart. The girls get pulled out of colleges there. The human trafficking kicks up. The narcotics tra trafficking kicks up. All of those things that you guys worked so hard to get rid of, when you look back on it, how do you make it okay in your head that, yes, we did that, and then people that shouldn't have made that decision made that decision, and that's how it left? Yeah, so DJ, I, I mean, I think we showed them, i.e., you know, the, the nations we worked with, um, you know, our version of right. You know, we, we showed them our version that opportunities do exist. We showed them that you can have, you know, a nation state that doesn't have to have conflict, doesn't have to be corrupt, that can provide civil liberties to everybody within their population. You know, uh, you know women, uh, men, 
you know, children have a right to continue to grow and develop and be educated. You know, that's obviously our American viewpoint. That's our democratic viewpoint. But for a period of time, we showed them what our version of right looks like. And you know what's kind of neat? I, I would actually say, um, so years later, um, as a you know, continued Special Forces soldier, um, we've hosted several nations here in the United States for training exercises. A lot of times people see us going overseas for trips to go work with our partners across the globe, but it's not uncommon for us to host people here. And one of the really cool things, you know, obviously we have great ranges, we can do airborne operations, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, conveniences of training here stateside with partners from, you know, you name it, India, Bangladesh, Japan, Thailand, Philippines, um, you name it. But you also come here and we, we've hosted people and showed them what right looks like for us in the sense that, you know, we're a developed nation with with uh, with school systems, highways, municipalities, you know, professional sports. Um, you know, this this is this is what our version of innovation, modernization and freedom looks like. And so for that period of time that we were operating in Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, we had the opportunity to be part of something pretty special you know, um, for a generation, right? 20 years. You and I talked earlier when I was 18 years old, making decisions on what university I was going to go to 22 years, you know, 24 years, I'm down in the Philippines as a Lieutenant. Um, you know, for 20 years, we showed people that's a whole generation. That is an entire generation. And I, I think what, what that's done at least is it's, it's now ingrained in the minds and the memories of the people we've worked with and fought with and fought for overseas. And so, you know, really now that's on them though, right? That is on, on their shoulders to continue up the fight, to continue to, to rally the flag of behind the pursuit of liberty. But, um, you know, our, our time over there uh, as a generation in conflict, you know, showed them that unique opportunity that we have here in the United States and said, hey, you know, there are other opportunities out there if you want to be part of something. And if you all as a nation state and, you know, as collectively want to continue that fight, you know, in, the, in that cause, we've trained you, we've built relationships, we've maintained contacts, we've been part of, you know, life events for them. And we hope that you can continue that fight moving forward. Our government has asked us to come back and focus on other things. Fantastic answer. Is that an officer answer for you there? That is... That is an officer answer, but it's a fantastic answer. It really does show how uh, maybe people haven't looked at it before. Let's move forward in your career. Now you're long tabbed. Uh, you wanted to speak Russian. You got Tagalog. So one more time in your career, you wanted something. You did not get it. But once again, it worked out for you because you get that. You get Okinawa and you get shuffled off to a dive team. Um, how great is that? DJ, that was dope. That was so cool. I, I got to go to a special forces dive team in Okinawa, Japan, which is like the Hawaii of Japan. I, I think my ODA uh, collectively dove more than like anybody in the regiment. We were in the water, whether it was the pool or the South China Sea, we were in the water like minimum of three to four times a week, whether it was diving, snorkeling, working on uh, uh, closed circuit, open circuit, or just on boats. I mean, if you're going to go anywhere and be a member of a dive team, which, 
Uh, if anybody doesn't know, I'm a combat diver. Uh, Chuck Ritter would give me shit for not saying that. But um, it's, it's probably one of the coolest uh, military schools that is offered. It's arguably uh, the most difficult school in the Army. And then there's, it's just, there's, it's a unique club uh, within the smaller Special Forces community. Uh, a little bit of street credibility and get to do something kind of unique, kind of cool, kind of hard. And yeah, I, I got to get the chance to go to be a dive team leader in Okinawa, which was absolutely incredible. You're on boats, you're in the water, you're rocking board shorts in the team room, uh, UDT shorts, which are, you know, cool skies out, thighs out. And it was one of those, like, you just have the swag, you get to look the part, everyone's fit and you're the dive team. So guys are like, that's cool. I want to be part of that. It was, it was a special place to be. I was uh, very proud to be a member of ODA 1125 in Okinawa, Japan. Uh, did you see any kind of operations with them other than what we're talking about where you're in the pool or you're in the ocean? Are you seeing real world missions with them? Sure. So, so the, the unique thing about first special forces group, excuse me, first battalion, first special forces group is you're a 14 hour time difference from everybody in the States. You are the only thing, you know, special operations oriented uh, uh, wise, truly like in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, we've got folks in Hawaii. That's another seven hour flight to like mainland Japan and then another three hours to Okinawa. So you're the only thing out there. You are truly a first responder for any sort of crisis, which is awesome. And the unique thing is the highest ranking person is the battalion commander. So an O5 which when you're a captain, that seems very, very like mature and old. And now it's kind of like, ah, oh, it's just an 05. Like, that's awesome. Like what, what uh, authority and responsibility you have. And uh, that guy has no, as an 05 out there. So you're asking operation wise, um, operating in every country you can imagine. And the dive team gets to be like, Hey, we're going to the littorals. So, which just means I get to go to the beach instead of being in the jungle. I'm going to go to the river and the beach and operate um, for all of our training events. Now, what's really cool is uh, I couldn't, I think it was 2015 or 16. I was just removed from the dive team and, and moved up to the, uh, the headquarters support company. But long story, I think I sent you a photo of this is like the SS Cossack. It's this huge military vessel that is leaving Okinawa and shipping all sorts of like equipment to thailand to participate in the uh the big exercise that happens in thailand every every year and there's there's like vehicles i think there's helicopters there's planes there's all sorts of stuff on this ship and it is leaving okinawa like leaving the harbor and it runs aground like no joke hits a reef runs aground a couple miles off uh off the uh the, the east side of okinawa and it's it's operated by by the navy I think the actual captain of the ship has to be, happens to be a former SEAL, which makes the story even better. And so they call over to, to, to Okinawa, like proper, um, to like the, the Naha port. And they're like, hey, like we, we ran aground. Like our, our boat is stuck. And we have gazillions of dollars with the military equipment headed to Thailand. And we can't move. Like we are stuck. Uh, completely run aground. And so the Navy is like, oh, man, what, like, what divers can we call? And so they wind up calling our battalion headquarters and say, can you guys activate one of your dive teams to go do a assessment on the ship's hull? So the bottom of the ship, 
to see how bad the damage is. And like our dive team is like, bro, we are in. Like this sounds awesome. The Navy called a bunch of Army Green Berets to go dive on a on a ship. Absolutely. And uh, they were kind enough. They invited me to tag along to be the uh, the safety diver because I was just just had just moved from the team. And so we go out. And there's like 13 of us total, all kitted up, all of our dive equipment, GoPros on on sticks, and essentially the team goes does a dive on the hull. And the Japanese like tugboats are holding this ship on the left side and the right side to make sure it doesn't tip over because it's it's run aground on the on the reef, and during low tide it could literally just tip over, which would cause catastrophic damage to all the equipment on there. And so it's probably costing hundreds of thousand dollars per day for these Japanese tugboats to hold the ship. And you can just see like the dollar meter just running as this thing's happening over like one day, two days, three days. So our ODA goes out, get escorted like first class out to the uh, to the boat, drop a couple, you know, probably about a couple kilometers off, go in our Zodiacs and uh, get close to the actual USS, the SS COSAC. And then we drop the team sergeant and a few of the other divers and they do a hull assessment. So they basically uh, swim bow to stern, so front to back, uh, with GoPros so they can see what the damage looks like and how bad the reef is. And then we climb the ladder to get up to the boat, you know, through the, like, the hatch door on the side because you can't, can't get on this thing. And so we, we get in there and we look at the GoPro footage and then present to the captain of the ship what we think is probably the main anchor point, any damage associated, and then, you know, provide them advice on how we best think to, to weld it or prepare it, kind of uh, fix the holes, and then, um, you know, how they should get off. So long story is they flew out some folks from the East Coast, from the West Coast, uh, from Coronado, who came out. They, uh, they wound up using our video footage to uh, repair the ship about two or three days later. And then the ship, uh, during high tide, was able to be tugged out by the tugboats and then go back on its course. Um, the ODA itself got recognized, which was super cool. Everybody on the team got uh, Navy Achievement Medals. And so you got to think kind of like real world, like shit kind of went wrong, even though it's not a, a dangerous setting. Um, you know, the, the Navy called expert special forces combat divers to come out and uh, actually do like an assessment of the ship. And it worked out really well, very professional. And, uh, you know, I would expect nothing less from a group of very professional combat divers. The red phone rang in the, uh, in, the in America. Got team, it. The team. And they picked up, and, and the team was like, "Yeah, we got this. We can, we can knock it out." All right. So I want to point out something else with your career that I think a lot of people may not know. Indo Pacific is what you're talking about. Uh, you ran uh, tons of stuff um, in Indo Pacific theater. The importance of this is there's three nuclear states: China, North Korea, and India. There, four of the world's largest militaries are there. And more than half of the world's population is there. And I don't think people understand. They, they see the Middle East. They see Afghanistan. They see other parts of the world where we do things in Europe and things like that. How much what you guys are doing, can we talk about how much it affects everything else that's going on in the world? Yeah, sure. But DJ, you sound, that sounds like a very officer answer that you just gave out right there, man. I love it. No, so uh, you got to think, though. So, um. You know, uh, years back, it was the quote unquote pivot to Asia, where I would say that most of the Department of Defense forces to include first special forces group, they were focused on Asia the whole time. 
you know, with, with the occasional and periodic rotations to Iraq and Afghanistan, but like the, the, the lens never came off of, you know, the Indo-Pacific uh, or, or Asia and the importance of it. And, you know, you got to think that um, you, you got the major superpowers. You do have North Korea. You do have China. You do have India. Um, you know, you're very focused on those regions and the influence that those have, you know, those those countries have on the partners, you know, a sense of building economic um, uh, progress throughout the ports, throughout the major metro, metropolitan areas, the major cities of those regions, the trade um, like that. That's huge. That is enormous. And really what our special forces group and then the larger special operations enterprise is doing is it's it's continuing to be that partner of choice right when we go out and work with people we treat them with dignity and respect we show them again what we think our version of right looks like but we adopt what they can do in triple canopy jungles in you know the water regions with language and culture with the equipment that they have and so rather than going around showing people and kind of telling them, hey, you must do this. This is what right looks like because we're battle tested in Iraq and Afghanistan. We tailor what we've learned and we go out and work with our partners, you know, partners being a SWAT team, Homeland Defense, um, special forces units, tier one units from across all of those countries. And we say, hey, here's what we've learned from combat, but here's what works for us. Let's tailor that to you. How can you better protect yourself? How can you better project your power? How can you better just, you know, treat your military and continue to, to, uh, to progress your people for, uh, you know, for continued sustainment and reenlistment in the military? Because these programs and systems work for us. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you can continue those relationships, the relationships matter. Relationships truly matter. And those are what I think will continue to, to pay dividends for the U.S. government as progress continues out in the Indo-Pacific. And there are maybe sides being taken. It's how do you choose us as a better partner and how do you want to be partnered with us or at least you know, be associated with us so we can continue to have influence on you. So let me ask you something. I want to go back to the question that I asked you about Afghanistan. When you say people are going to choose sides, they're going to pick who they want to be partners with. The stuff that we talked about earlier, does that hurt us in the future? When people are picking partners, when people are picking who they want to team up with, is it going to hurt us at all? Or are we, from what you see in the lens and the landscape that you see it from, are we okay? No, I, I think we're going to be okay. And I think that, you know, it's it's not as uh, binary as, as uh, it comes across, right? You know, picking partners, picking sides. Um, it's it's uh, collaboration and cooperation together, Right. Um, you know, we have people who, you know, we have nations we compete with, um, but it's okay to compete with, you know, to, to collaborate with both nations. So it's the better for you, better for your specific nation. You know, some examples that, that are out there is, you know, there's some smaller militaries out there, some smaller economies. You look at Thailand, you look at Vietnam, you look at um, the Philippines, for example, is like, you know, it doesn't have to be binary. Doesn't have to be you choose you choose one nation to work with over the other. It's you know you can continue to do what's in the best interest for you, but just know that um, you know who's been there a while, who's been there you can rely on and trust if stuff goes sideways. And I think those relationships at the end of the day are are what you're you're looking for of how you've been treated previously and who you think you can truly rely on. 
Um, it's tough to to kind of quantify that though, right? You can't sit there and say like, all right, you know, um, stability in the region or deterrence, like how, nothing's happened. How do, you, how do you quantify what success looks like? But if we're continuing to be invited back, if militaries are continuing to look at us and say, we want to be involved with you, we want to learn from you, we want to have you show us, but also help us, and we're willing to give you you know, uh, access to the region and resources and kind of, you know, a, a, a leg up in the sense that you're here more frequently and that's okay. Um, and that doesn't hurt them. It doesn't hurt us. And it allows us to continue to cooperate together, which I think is a, is a good thing for all of us. No, nobody wants to go, you know, see a version of large scale combat operations. Nobody wants to see that. Nobody wants to implode, uh, economies and, competitions kind of the or integrated deterrence is is the word that we're speaking of right now it's kind of the buzzword but if you look at those relationships and how they matter and who you can rely on and continue to call and continue working with that'll go a long way all right i want to talk about one final deployment of yours and uh i want to talk about asp afghanistan <laughs> afghanistan yeah <laughs> so let's uh let's talk about that deployment what's the deal with it Afghanistan in the sense that, uh, you know, Chuck Ritter's deployment there and, and his uh, phenomenal forged in fire episode of Pineland Underground. That was one take. That was one take. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I screwed well, up. Set so, up the story. I, I want people to know. So you, you want to know more about Pineland Underground or? Oh, we'll talk about that in a minute. I want to I want to hear about Afghanistan. <laughs> so uh, I'm I'm. Uh, I'm I was charged with uh, with setting up Pineland Underground, or really the the official podcast of the Special Warfare Center and School, or SWIC as we call it. Uh, I had the opportunity to work for a phenomenal leader, Major General Roberson, and we had a great um, a, a great relationship. And I was given a lot of uh, autonomy in the sense of bringing a good podcast together. And so I, I kind of start out. I am. Uh, you know, I'm a special forces soldier. I'm like, yeah, run a podcast, man. How does that work? Uh, we had one. It was uh, called Knowledge Wins, and it's very much um, wasn't quite a podcast by definition. wasn't synchronized on all the platforms like iTunes, Spotify, and uh, it, the branding kind of was was uh, was subpar. And I was like, okay, how do we make this thing actually good and something we're proud of? How do we brand it? So we crowdsourced some branding, nailed down Pineland Underground. Which a phenomenal name of of Pineland being the uh, the the, uh, the mythical country that all special operations soldiers deploy to for their training exercises while they're here going through our training pathway and basically learning their trade within special operations, and the underground is one of the elements uh, within unconventional warfare. And the flag you see on the uh, logo is is the actual Pineland flag or the Pineland resistance flag. So long story is I get introduced to Chuck Ritter who's the deputy commandant at our non-commissioned officer academy. And I'm going to interview him about his experiences in Afghanistan and, um, you know, what he's learned, his uh, road to recovery from some of his combat wounds. Here's some amazing stories and talk about, uh, uh, you know, really some of his actions overseas and just get to know him a bit. He's got a phenomenal story. So we, we titled the episode Forged in Fire. 
And there was a great special warfare magazine article that had come out. And so I read the script or the citation from that. And it was like a four minute thing where it was like trying to make it dramatic and cool. And, uh, yeah, I, I That's where you went Af- wrong right there. Af- Afghanistan. And to this day, his son actually makes fun of me for that. He's like, yeah, dad, Afghanistan. What the hell is that? <laughs> but, uh, no, uh, phenomenal episode, actually. And it what's really sparked our relationship for working together on what is the Pineland Underground official podcast of the Special Warfare Center and uh, really how you and I got connected and something that Chuck and I and the entire uh, team are really proud of to continue working on. I want to talk about something serious and then we're going to come back to the podcast because there's a lot of good stuff that I want to talk about. But I want to talk about mental health awareness. Uh what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. You've talked about it a couple times on the show. Uh, you had an episode when the wolves come knocking. That was Mike Fioka. Uh, and then you had the masks we wear. Um, an SF soldier speaks out. That was Sergeant Major Josh Thompson. Now, you've talked yeah. about m- mental health, both of those. Mike's story, f- absolutely fantastic. Uh, the article that he wrote, the masks that we wear, uh, Josh Thompson wrote, another fantastic thing. I want to ask you, and I don't want an officer answer. I want it off the cuff from your heart. Are we doing the right thing, mental health awareness, and getting these guys back to uh, baseline? Yeah, so we are on the right path. Are we doing it right? Yes. Have we figured it out completely, and have we made amazing strides in it? I think we're still falling short on that end. And what I'm getting at is, you know, we, we put a lot of effort as, as leaders. Uh, we talk about mental health pretty regularly. What I think, though, is soldiers across the board and definitely within the special operations community, they're going to struggle years later after events from Iraq, from Afghanistan, from combat, right? It's not something you come back from a deployment and all of a sudden like you're dealing with a, with a mental health uh, uh you know, issue or or uh, you know it really hasn't sunk in yet you haven't you haven't even like you know compressed coming back from a deployment you nothing's kicked in your brain hasn't been able to really understand what it's seen or done or what's you know what you as a person has been, have been asked to do and um, you haven't coped with some of those things even a loss of a buddy yet and so really, it's, it's one of those things that like, it may not happen for years. It may not happen for six, seven years later. So what I think we're failing at right now, but making better progress is trying to identify years later where guys are starting to like, have those triggers of, oh shit, that guy, that guy he's, he's starting to, to, to see the negative things and he's starting to react to the negative things that he saw in combat a few years ago. But the person, when he redeployed, you know, seven years before, hasn't been the same person who's checked up on him. And so it's somebody new getting to know him, somebody new hearing his story, somebody new trying to digest and understand what we've asked that service member to do or put them through. And then all of a sudden you're starting from ground zero because you don't quite know um, the same continuity that person has had uh, previously. We talk about it though, right? Um, 
mental health is a real thing. Mental health is, is, is an umbrella term, but people struggle and they cope in whatever way, whether that's alcoholism, whether that may be, uh, you know, possibly, uh, you know, turning to, to, to drugs or, um, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's just, uh, their behavior. Maybe that's the, just, um, you know, shutting people out. Um, it's tough in the sense that there's no complete, and cure is not the right answer. There's no complete way for every person to just to know that they're running through through issues. Everything has to be kind of a tailored approach. I would say that the stigma is starting to fade, but still there. The stigma of people asking for help. It takes courage to ask for help and to seek out resources. Resources are there. The military has invested in psychologists, clinical psychologists, military family life consultants, you name it. Any of these things that can allow a service member or their family to talk to. What hasn't quite reached everybody is the sense that it's okay to ask for help. And asking for help is one of the most difficult things a special operations soldier will do. We assess and select special operations people to be adaptive problem solvers. We, we ask them to do complex things and just figure it out with little to no resources. And so now we're asking them to ask for help when we've, we've selected them and trained them to not have to do that. And that's one of the bigger stig stigmas that we're trying to, to sort through is ensuring that people know it's okay to ask for help. Here's how you do it. Here's how you seek the help, and here's what the help the help looks like. Here's it's just it it's not going to be like a you know here's go go to six clinical sessions and all of a sudden you'll feel better. Talk to this one person, you're going to feel better. It's it takes a combination of your brothers in arms who are around you and your colleagues. It takes a combination of good leadership supporting people. It takes a combination of the family at home knowing that the person needs help and helping them guide them to, uh, to, to, to reach out. And then it takes the person, him or herself saying, I think I have something I'm working through. I need to get help. I need to talk to somebody. I have a problem and it's me and it's going on inside my mind. I need to, to work it out. And I think that's where we're probably uh, falling short right there is, is making sure that people know it's okay to ask for help and then showing them what right looks like to do so. Let me pose another question to you. When people ask for help and when they, they, they reach that arm out to do it, do you think that there's still, I don't know if the word is a stigma. Do you still think that there is people want to hear that you want help, but they don't want it to get too messy. Command doesn't want to get too messy. The general public doesn't want to get too messy. And once again, I'm speaking from a law enforcement point of view uh, where, yeah, we want to hear that you have a problem, but if it's a real bad problem and it could get out there, we really don't want you talking about it that much. Do you agree that's still around? I think there's probably some of that still around. I mean, if you, you look at Chuck and I's uh, podcast, right, with uh, uh, Mike Fioca, and uh, you look at, uh, um, excuse me, Mike Fiola, and you look at Josh Thompson, right? You know, you have two guys who have some pretty dark stories and they, they literally contemplated suicide uh, to the point where they were almost, they, they, they were in the 
process of about to commit an act, um, but did not. And that that's scary, right? That is that's horrific. That is that is not something that um, I would say a lot of people want to go on a, a megaphone and, and the leaders want to go on a uh, you know megaphone and kind of make those announcements. So we have people who are who are uh, you know that close to doing it to commit an act of taking their own lives. Um, what I will say though is that if you look at the number of people who have taken their own lives and suicide specifically, um, I, I no longer have enough fingers to count on of the brothers that I've had who have who've taken their own lives. And that probably is very similar across, um, you know, most guys I work with. And I, I imagine there's probably some similarities across law enforcement and first responders where people don't know how much they're appreciated. They think that there's no way out except for, for falling that really, really dark hole. Um, and you know, they, they, uh, they're just very close to it and want to want to find a way to get out of whatever the hell hole that they have found themselves in in a very dark place. And so I would say that, um, I think we're at the point right now where it's, I think senior leaders are starting to say, Hey, like it's enough's enough. And one is too many. And if we need to go out and say, yep, we have these mental health issues that we've identified, um, but we want to fix it. We definitely want to fix it. We want people to be okay with asking for help. And if it takes, you know, that stigma of, you know, special operations has some sort of issue to fix it, we're willing to do so because we don't want to lose another person. Um, I think there's probably some senior leaders out there who don't agree with that. For me personally, that's one of those that like, yeah, we want to get ahead of things. We want to be preventative. We want to make sure that we've taken care of our people to the best of our ability and given them every sort of option to find help. And we've surrounded them with the help that they need, that they feel comfortable in accepting it. Once again, I'm going to speak law enforcement perspective, but the way we look, and maybe it's that jadedness coming out again, but it, it's a number. It's a numbers game. When you're done with your career, you move on. That You're kind of forgotten about. You're left after you've given 20, 25, 30 years of your life. That's a big reason why I started this podcast was I see all these guys doing this, and a year later, two years later, they were dead, whether that be from suicide, alcohol, whatever it may be, they were dead. Uh, health conditions. When you look at it, and the mental health awareness, the suicide, uh, is grown exponentially. And maybe we're just hearing more about it now. What are things that we can do to catch up and kind of slow this rate down? Yeah. I was actually sitting in a great meeting with, um, with, uh, focus on this topic with people over here in a second special warfare training group. And uh, one of our psychologists had just mentioned, I was like, hey, you know, like when you go talk to people, right, you know, you, you and anybody across the command, like everyone's busy, everyone has their own issues, everyone has their own stressors. Uh, but you see someone who, who's clearly um, struggling a bit and you, you know, all right, hey, how are things going, man? Hey, you know, living the dream. That's first answer. Or, you know, things are great. Doing awesome. Like, okay, cool. Like, that's not true. Like, <laughs> that's, 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 that's initial shield. That's an easy mask that you're wearing right now. Okay, what's the follow-up? And as you start to dig, um, the, the question the psychologist asked us as the leaders in the room was, how, how many times have you ever actually said the words, are you considering suicide? Like those words, are you considering suicide? And the majority of the people in the room were like, no, like I, 
if, if I mentioned that maybe they would follow through, maybe they would, you know, be steering towards it. And I think the power of that, um, those words of like, Hey, are you considering hurting yourself or suicide is one of those that actually hits home with people in the sense that like, yeah, they'd be more willing to say, you know, to be admit if they were, and then you could have another conversation from there of, you know, okay, let's, let's talk. What's going on in your life? How are you doing? How are things? What are the things that are causing you to be in this dark place? I'd also say though, too, um, what's really hard is the population of our people who are outside the military, who have left the military, have, have moved on. And you just brought that up, right? It's when you have people who have trans- transitioned or retired from the military, and now they no longer have their buddies checking in on them. You know, they're not going to a team room on a daily basis or around the people who know their, their daily behaviors. Um, they're not surrounded by, you know, the, the love of the, the brothers in arms and the sisters in arms that we have within, within the community of, of the military. Um, or in your case, again, law enforcement, you know, you've, you've, you may be no, no longer have that sense of purpose when you go to work. Um, or it's a different community you're surrounded with, but you may not feel as comfortable. That's our population that I'm most, uh, most nervous about. Those are the people that I want to make sure. And I think that we collectively as, you know, as, as brothers need to continue checking in on and, and having a pulse with and keeping up with, because as they move on from what they would say is those kind of continued support mechanisms, and they're now post-military, that's probably the community of people that um, I would be most nervous about of not having that sense of camaraderie purpose and um, you know, not, not being in that same kind of service uh, service felt uh, felt commitment that they have. All right. Deeply personal question here. I want to use two of you. I want to use you and I want to use your father. Did you, as you look over your career and now that you have been in the schoolhouse and things like that, had a little time to decompress, open that luggage up, open some of those boxes up. Have you found that you suffered from PTS at all? Have you suffered any backlash from it? Has it raised its head to you? And number two, now that you have been a special forces soldier, uh, you've been in the military, you've been in command positions. When you look back on your father, do you see that he did in his time had trouble as he stepped away uh, from that world? Yeah, DJ, that's that's another good, uh, uh, deep question, uh, really good question. So for me personally, um, you know, again, I, I don't feel like I've ever seen anything um, ho- horrific in combat. I don't think I've ever been exposed to anything that has troubled me or that I feel like uh, I couldn't openly talk about. Um, that's not the case for a lot of our people, right? I, I don't know if that's a rare instance. But that's just my kind of personal um, personal experience. For me, I do think that stress is heightened and I take everything that I do extremely seriously because I know that in a training setting, it could be you know the difference of life and death. And in a work setting or a garrison type setting, I strive to try to be as, as professional, but also as excellent as possible. And that's a lot of self-produced stress of, you know, continue to try to, to try to crush it and rock and, um, 
you know, be as professional, but also as driven as possible because I know the value of training and preparing for combat, which is, I would say, almost as stressful as well because you don't know what's going to happen and you want to be as ready, but you'll never actually be, you know, a thousand percent ready for combat. It's, it's kind of a best guesstimate, if you will. Um, so do I feel like I have any uh, post-traumatic stress? I'm going to kind of just say no, but I definitely feel like I have a heightened sense of um, stressors or irritants or things because I want to ensure that people around me are as prepared as possible and that we collectively are prepared for combat if it's asked of us and ready to to go out and do and, and deploy if needed. Um, you know, for my dad... Um, you know, I, I think he kind of had similar experiences from me, you know, very much a, a Cold War soldier, always uh, preparing for, but never, never, uh, you know, seeing combat firsthand. Um, you know, he, he was a member of the Crisis Response Force or the CRIF in uh, Intense Special Forces Group overseas. And I, I remember kind of hearing stories about, you know, his guys, you know, preparing to, uh, to respond to different hostage crises, but never actually getting the green light. And so... I would say kind of kind of similarly post traumatic likely not but that driven sense of wanting to make sure that everything is perfect everything is greatly prepared for and knowing that if you do get activated for combat in a split second and you are responsible for the soldiers around you and if something goes sideways or wrong it's the training and your leadership that will, you know, could, could ultimately be the, the failure and, and uh, you know, uh, inevitably somebody getting hurt. You know, that's a lot of weight on your shoulders right there. So that's just kind of my personal take on it. Um, I hope that's a, hope that's a decent answer to tell you that, uh, or at least a little glimpse from my lens. So when you were talking just now, you said that you're, you always try and keep it as professional. Uh, you're in garrison right now. You try and keep it as professional as possible, but you always try and crush everything that you're doing. And so it almost seems like you're saying those things are mutually exclusive of each other. You have to either be professional or you have to crush it. it am I reading it wrong? Or I guess I'm not understanding what you mean by that. No, I, I think that uh, maybe maybe it's just, um, you know, I, I would say like it's, it's self-induced stress uh, to try to make sure that you are as prepared as possible for combat, um, but also you have adequately thought of everything in the event, like you're actually going to go get activated for combat itself. And so, you know, for me personally, it is, um, I want to make sure that I don't half-ass anything. The people around me are pushed to the point where they're equally as prepared as me. And then we collectively are prepared to, to, to deploy, to go do training events, um, or, you know, to, to make sure that we've gone through uh, rehearsals of you know, training scenarios here stateside as much as possible so that it becomes second nature. Um, it's always the anticipation of if you get do get deployed, what's going to kick in? You know, what's what's the level of acceptable risk and to what level do we need to be most prepared? And I guess just what I'm trying to get at is, um, you know, when I say crush it, it's, it's very much the making sure that the people around me are pushed to the point where they've learned and it becomes second nature of what, you know, what it is they're going to do. And that if we look back after being deployed or activated, 
that um, nobody has any regrets because we knew we prepared as much as, and as hard as possible. Okay. That, that explains it. All right. Let's talk about what you're doing now and let's talk about the podcast where people can find you, things like that to kind of wrap this whole thing up. You are now um, the director for the army special operations language, regional education and cultural directorate. Yeah. So my target language that I learned through army special operations is Tagalog. Uh, I would say I'm semi-conversational in German, can can still, you know, still pick up, uh, but uh, as far as listening, re, uh, you know, reading and, and speaking, maybe not so much. Um, so at least I'm familiar. And then uh, English. But what's unique to Army Special Operations is, you know, we do what's called the indigenous approach, um, which is we work by, with, and through our, our partner forces from across the globe. If we can work with a partner from another nation and uh, build them up to secure themselves, to do work on our behalf, um, to not put U.S. Uh, service members' lives at risk, and we can help our partners be better trained and prepared for anything that might happen in their own countries or their neighboring countries, then that's what success looks like. And what I try to tell people, and I think it really does kind of pay dividends, um, is that, okay, language is, is a bridge. Language leads to understanding, a shared language. Understanding leads to trust. Trust leads to partnerships, and partnerships lead to alliances. And language is the root of that, of that understanding and being able to work with somebody. And DJ, do, do you speak any of the languages yourself? Okay. No. So it's, it's, I would it's love to learn of- Spanish. Heck yeah, come 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 here to SWIC. I mean, we'll throw you in some Spanish class. <laughs> so so language for us though, it's it's one of the it, what's what makes us unique and different for the army. Uh, the higher the war, uh, the SEALs kind of tried to, to emulate being language and culturally savvy. Uh, they no longer do it. They divest it. They no longer teach languages at NSW. MARSOC, the Marine Special Operations, they do language and culture. However, it's not for everybody. Not every uh, job or military uh, occupational specialty learns a language, and they only learn three languages where we as Army Special Operations uh, have 12 strategic languages that we teach to our soldiers. Because we're geographically aligned, you know, we deploy people to the region that they've trained for, and they can go work with that work with that partner. So what's really cool is I've been here at the Special Warfare Center for two years. I wanted to be around students in this new job. So I asked my boss, I was like, hey, um, I, I really enjoyed working at the headquarters for two years, but I'd like to go be around students. And the language phase is the very last phase uh, that any of the new students or new graduates, uh, you know, last thing that touches them before they go out to the operational force, before they join their real units and the real teams. So language is very much the finishing school for all of the Special Warfare Center. We teach things, you know, outside of language. It's about building character, teaching values, and work ethic. Now, what's cool is, you know, if you go through the Special Forces, Civil Affairs, or the Psychological Operations Pipeline or Qualification course, you're there for about a year learning what it is you're going to do, you know, what it is your job is. Well, their very last phase is in an academic setting in a classroom. 
in language. So as a special forces soldier, our people are out, you know, in the woods, running raids, ambushes, small unit tactics. They attend the survive, evade, resist, and escape school. They learn their jobs, you know, whether that's weapons, communications, uh, medical, um, or, uh, or or any of, any of their other uh, occupational specialties. And so you, you, it's, it's all about team building. It's about being in an environment where you can muscle through it and you can kind of like push through it. And you can, yeah, let's get after it. You go to language. Language is an equalizer. Like everybody learns at a different rate. I don't care if you're a captain or you're a sergeant. Like if it doesn't click upstairs, you're going to struggle. And then our people struggle because it's on them. It's it's something you have to do internally. It's You have to be driven to, to learn your language. And you're in a classroom 30 hours a week, five days a week. Excuse me. Yeah, 30 hours a week, five days a week for about four to six months. Learning that language to be conversational. And so what's really cool is uh, right now we have, I have like 538 uh, brand new RSOF soldiers in class. And I have 190 plus language instructors who represent 50 different nations of origin. So it's like being a principal of like a mini United Nations. It's absolutely incredible. Our instructors have been there for, you know, seven, eight plus years. They've invested their time to be educators in our special operations soldiers. And it's really neat because our soldiers are incredibly motivated. They're savvy. They want to learn the language so they can use it in the country they're going to deploy, you know, the region they're going to deploy to. And it's a really humbling place to be and uh, really be part of that last developmental phase for our students before they join the operational force. All right, let's talk about the podcast. Let's get it out there where people can find you, where they can find the podcast, and uh, on his own webpage uh, on our website. Chuck's already done, so now we got to get you out there. Yeah, DJ. So uh, Chuck Ritter and I, uh, we are the co-hosts and producers of Pineland Underground. Pineland Underground can be found on all your major podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google, and all the podcast platforms, wherever you can find them. And then again, um, what we try to do is we have a mixture of, you know, being informative, entertaining, educational, and inspiring. We've brought great special operations soldiers, legends, new graduates uh, on, and we've talked, you know, everything you can imagine from civil affairs, psychological operations, special forces, history, current missions, training pathways, uniqueness, traits that we're looking for in the people. And we've also looked at businesses and seen how leadership, then leadership traits in the business world, in the competitive sports world, align with things and ways we approach competition within special operations. So you can find it on all your major platforms, Pineland Underground, and it's the official podcast of the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School. If you had to pick two episodes, what would you want people to listen to so they can get on board with you guys? What would you say? Yeah, so if I had to pick uh, pick one, it would be um, secrets to great leadership. There's a lot of there's a lot of secret ingredients to great leadership. We have some phenomenal guests. Uh, one of them being Sergeant Major Chuy Almonte and Sergeant Major Chuck Ritter talking about expectations and caring for people within the special operations community. So I would say secrets to great leadership. And then we did kind of a three-part series discussing special forces, civil affairs, and PSYOP. So I would say check out Ghosts in the Machine, 
Check out our civil affairs episode with Rob McQueen, Full Spectrum Special Operations Civil Affairs. Uh, check out Forged in Fire with Sergeant Major Chuck Ritter and kind of hear his upbringing, his story, and really how he he observed some great leaders uh, and it really kind of helped him hone and tailor what he wanted to be as a senior leader within the Special Forces community. Where can people find you? Hey, so I'm really only available on LinkedIn. I don't have a huge, uh, I don't have a Twitter following. I'm not on Instagram. Facebook, I really keep for family and friends, but I am on LinkedIn, happy to connect. Uh, we talk about things across the Special Warfare Center. We talk about things from Pineland Underground. I'm also involved in a great nonprofit called For Country, where we, uh, we take special operations members and pair them with business leaders and community members uh, on the golf course to promote things like mentorship, community, and connection. And so really LinkedIn is the best spot to find me, and it's Bobby Tuttle at LinkedIn. All right. Is there anything else, Bobby, that you would like to tell the world before we end this? Yeah. So I would say everybody has a story. Um, everybody has a path that they've found. I would just say it's pretty important that not everybody, you know, has made it on their own. Right. And I would say most people and probably DJ yourself included, I would assume you've had people give you advice, you know, really help mentor you and really kind of help steer you to be the person that you are today. For me, that's a dad. That is a, a, a loving husband. That's a son, a proud son. Uh, and that's also a, a very proud member of our, our army and our special forces community. And so I think one of the most important things you can do is surround yourself with great people, seek out people, seek out mentors, seek out people who can provide you advice, um, who have made those mistakes before you and you can learn from, who can help you through hard times, you know, surround yourself with great people and great family members. Uh, because not everybody, uh, you know, no, nobody does it alone. They've all been molded by the people around them. And uh, it's pretty special to be able to you know, pay it forward and do that for others. And so uh, my advice to, to our listeners is one, just want to say thanks for listening. Uh, but two, my advice is, you know, surround yourself with great people and uh, always go out of your way to find those people and uh, ask them to be part of your, part of your kind of close-knit family. Bobby, I'm so glad you came on here, man. I'm so honored that you did this. And uh, everybody, you know where you can find Bobby. Uh, mostly, just go to LinkedIn. You can find him. He'll connect with you. Uh, and don't forget, check out the Pineland Underground podcast. Now, you know where you can find them. Here's where you can find me. You can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video and you can see everything that's going on with this show. You can also check us out on Facebook at the DTD Podcast. Now, your one-stop shop, dtdpodcast.net. That's going to have audio, video. Bobby's going to have his own episode page with all the pictures that we were talking about. The ships, the operations, everything about his career is going to be there. Go check it out, dtdpodcast.net. And don't forget our sponsors. Let's start with Police Coffee. Now, you know they're an officer-owned business, and they're dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends, and they're shipped as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. 
Each batch, it's roasted fresh by people who knows what it means to stay vigilant, and their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Their coffee's some of the best you'll find, but here's the big thing with me. It serves an important cause. They give back to our community. 50% of their profits goes towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. So make sure you go to Police Coffee. They've got a new one, One Ranger. It's a Texas pecan. They've still got some peppermint mocha, and they've still got some pumpkin spice left over from the fall season that everyone loves so much. And when you go to policecoffee.com, make sure you put in DJK10 for 10% off your order. And welcome our newest sponsor, Mac Belts. If you're looking for the toughest leather belt on earth, you went to the right place, Mac Belts. He served in special operations and he realized how important it was to have reliable equipment that could withstand tough conditions. And that's what he designed, a belt that's tough enough for anyone, from warfighters to casual weekend warriors. Each belt's made with full grain leather and it's handmade by veterans in the United States. Now we gotta talk about the buckle. It's the toughest buckle on earth and they made it unbreakable. It consists of 100 grams of unbreakable American stainless steel. It's engineered, designed, and assembled, machined in the USA, USA-built machines, and veterans making it. So make sure you swing by Mac Belts. Pick up a belt, pick up a buckle. It's a new year. It's time for a new belt. Guys, that's going to be it for this week. Make sure you check us out next week on the show. That's Bobby. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you later. Bye.